When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. Long Island Vibes. On 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Now here's your host, Frank McKay. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here with someone who, uh, who, who didn't take no for an answer. He had a lot of talent and did not have an easy way to the top, but uh, I believe he was the first artist ever to sell a million records uh, from from TV and promoting himself on, on TV. He'll correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, what a splash he made, and he just refused to take no for an answer. His name is Peter Lemongello, and he started out on Long Island, so all, all you Long Islanders uh, that might be listening... Um, this is uh, this is one of our own, and and he has uh, absolutely uh, made us all proud by again uh, stick to itiveness and and talent. And talent has a lot to do with it too. A great singer, Peter Lemangelo. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me on your show. Well, listen, it's it's true, right? You were the first guy, really, that that I remember. I was I was a kid when it was happening, and we were so proud of you because you lived around the corner from me growing up, and we heard about you, and you were a legend in the uh, in the neighborhood, and everybody was talking about you. But it, it it really, you were the guy that broke through on TV the first time. Yeah, I was the actually. I don't think anyone else uh, ever launched their career as an unknown on TV, and and. Uh, broke that way i know uh, my reason for doing it was simple um i had been at it for many years uh, and and i had some success and i got teased a few times but i didn't get to where i wanted to go uh, i did i did a couple of tonight shows and i i was able to get a couple of uh the other talk shows uh at the time mike douglas was one of them merv griffin but I wasn't getting anywhere. And eventually, in 1973, I signed with Epic Records, and uh, that could have launched my career in a conventional way, like uh, any of the other artists that you know. But they didn't push the record, and then a year later, they dropped me. And, and uh, although that's common, when you are with a major label and, and then you get dropped, it's even more difficult to end up uh, finding another major label that's willing to take a chance with you. So I had a couple of years that were very, very uh, frustrating. And eventually I got the idea to circumvent the industry completely and to uh, uh, do what I did, which was I made my own album, I made my own TV commercial, and I bought my own airtime. Wow. My purpose was I had, I had a lot of... Uh, a lot of reasons behind it because I felt this was a way for me to get directly to the public. And if they liked me and bought me, then I not only proved to the industry that I was worthy of a career, but I could dispel the doubt. Now, if they didn't like me and didn't buy my albums, um, then I would understand and I, I would I, I'd accept it. 
the truth is I never expected to sell over a million albums and nobody that was involved with me did either. Uh, the success we had was um, shockingly uh, uh, glorious. You know, we were happy with the results, obviously. But uh, the purpose I originally intended for it was to, to make a mark, to make, you know, to get myself famous and, and end up with a career. And it led to all kinds of things like uh, Lincoln Center, Westbury Music, uh, Madison Square. Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall. I was almost going to forget that. Okay. Yeah. Wow. One of the highlights of my life. I got to tell you something, Frank. When you are starting out and you, uh, obviously, it's very hard to get a decent venue to work in when you're just starting. Uh, it's very tough to get the friends, family, and uh, people to come and see you. But when you work in Carnegie Hall, they can't wait to get there. Yeah. Wow. You know? Wow. <laughs> Madison Square Garden, Carnegie Hall, and Lake Assembly. That was really easy. Jeez. Yeah, it's it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I, and it's it's really a unique thing to do nowadays. I mean, it, like people record in their their basements and everything else. I, what kind of recording budget did you start out with? I mean, did you um, did you did you go somewhere locally? On you were on Long Island, right? For the most part, you were on Long Island. Yes, but um, let me explain how that happened. Yeah. Um, Trying to put a package like that together is, is is really, when I look back on it, a tremendous amount of work. I mean, if uh, aside from, I'll answer your question about the album in a second, but trying to uh, understand how much is involved. If you're involved with a record company, they do everything for you. If you're on your own, you make an album, you end up with a tape, you have to bring it to a pressing plant and get all of that, you know, get them mothered and and uh, ready to press, you have to get a printer and somebody to make uh, to glue the printing onto the uh, album covers. I mean, it's really an expensive amount of work. But it was a labor of love. I mean, I enjoyed every minute of it. And I was so young that uh, the hard work didn't bother me. Today it would be as uh, overwhelming. But anyway, we we didn't have a big budget. Uh, we, we allocated $10,000 to make the album which is almost impossible to do. Yeah. Truth is, I ended up uh, along the way meeting a, a sax player named Joe Grimaldi. His, his stage name is Joe Grim. And uh, he knew Teddy Randazzo. And he said to me, Teddy had, had hit records uh, with Little Anthony and the Imperials hurt so bad, going out of my head, and, and a couple of others. So he said, Teddy's got new material, um, perfect for this era, the disco era that we were in. He said, uh, and he's interested. So I went up and I went to his house in Nyack. We met. We really hit it off uh, musically and, and uh, even developed a friendship. And I loved all the songs that he had written. And uh, so he understood the situation. He called on every friend of his who was a musician. He had a friend who had a, a recording studio in Nyack, and believe it or not we put the the uh, studio album together with uh, as many as 38 musicians on almost every song and five singers but the five singers were uh, Teddy his wife Vicky uh, Bobby uh, Weinstein who co-wrote the songs with Teddy and a couple of other people and 
so we put the whole thing together and it was really fabulous work the album came out so well and uh and we did it for the ten thousand. that's almost a miracle yeah even then it was 1975 when we recorded it december of 75 you, you realize so, if we were watching this on on a big screen in a movie theater people would say come on yeah, what are you talking about? You, you actually did this. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. You, if you're just joining us or if you're turning on your radios a little late, Frank McKay here, much more importantly, Peter Lemongello, a very talented guy, but a, a story really of, uh, of just perseverance, uh, just an amazing career that he put together. And, and again, he, he didn't like the way uh, the industry was going for him, and 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 he just he decided to go, uh, go at it himself, and he uh, he launched a TV campaign, sold a million records on TV, uh, the the first to do anything like that, an unknown breaking himself through uh, through TV commercials. I mean, it's just absolutely mind blowing what he did, and and you don't. It, you really don't realize how incredible that is unless you really knew the history. And then here we are, Peter Lemangelo, getting the history. Frank McKay here with Peter. Uh, Peter, what did what did Epic have as a reaction, if any, once you you sold the million records? Once they realized you, you know you are a hit, did they reach back to you? Did they re-release their record? Did you no, have? But, but what's funny is that uh, when we had this enormous success. And I, uh, the the people I'll go back just a second. The people who we found to place the uh, the media company, it was called Triad Media. Who uh, there were two girls that owned it, had had experience in buying uh, TV commercials, went out on their own. They believed in me so much that they worked really hard uh, to make sure we got the best mileage, dollar for dollar. And, that's why we were able to buy 100 spots a week on, on New York television at first. We branched into other uh, markets. But when we did that, I said to them, you think people will will uh, know who I am? She said, one of them said, you won't be able to walk the streets. You won't believe how popular <laughs> you're going to get. And it's comical because I had a cousin that lived in Jersey. And he said that on Friday, he was the complete unknown. Uh, my commercial started Saturday morning. He said, by Monday morning, I was famous. Wow. Wow. He said, I went to school. He says, you know him? He says, my cousin. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, we had, we had, you know, it really skyrocketed, and it was a wonderful experience. But, no, um, my ambition was to end up with a major label, which I did, Private Stock Records, who had uh, Frankie Valley and Walter Murphy and uh, David Soul and several other people on their label. And that was my ambition because I broke on TV, and I, you know, I, I – circumvented the industry and pulled the stunt that made it work for me. But then I wanted to have a conventional career. I wanted to concentrate on my music and, and uh, my performances and, and let the record company do all the, the uh, underwriting and uh, distribution and promotion. So it did work out for me that way, but not from uh, Epic. They didn't bite again. What's comical about it, though, is that 60 Minutes did a, uh, a piece on it, and they interviewed everybody. The uh, the, the press agent I had at the time, you know, that I, I used uh, to promote uh, media for me, and uh, they went back to Epic Records. They went back to the William Morris Agency and asked the president what he thought, and this is really comical. He said, uh, well, to tell you the truth, he said, you can't, if you're going to go on TV 100 times a week, you got to get famous. He said, so... 
I'm not surprised. But the truth is, I met him before I did it, and I told him about it, and he said, you're nuts. This will never work. And I said, well, wait a minute. So you can't sell records as an unknown on TV. I said, well, if I go on 100 times a week, aren't people going to relate to me for my own commercial, and then I wouldn't be unknown to them? Well, he didn't buy it. But then when it was on 60 Minutes, he kind of took credit for it. Wow. You know, and Epic Records did the same thing. They went back to the president of Epic, and he said, uh, no, he says, you know, you make mistakes. He said, he's, he's very good, and the people love him. He said, uh, but when we had him, we didn't see it that way, you know? It, you so, you want to know something funny? I grew up, and I think when I reached out to you, I uh, I put this in there, but I grew up on Kenneth Lane. Now, I was born in 1967, so I was a little kid. And we heard uh, we heard about you. You lived next door, or your mom lived next door. I think you grew no, up. No, we next lived door. on Jane Drive, which was back to back with yep. Kenneth. Right, and you lived next door to my first grade and my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. McSquiggan. And I don't know oh if you, God, you you remember you her. Thing. You poor thing. <laughs> she lived to ninety nine years old. And uh, yeah, I mean, she uh, unbelievable. Yeah, she. Well, that doesn't see the good die young, and that proves. Oh, no. Did she give you a hard time growing up? Was she one of those? God, yes. That's unbelievable. We, we grew up thinking that she and her husband didn't like kids. What kind of people don't like kids would become school teachers, you know, but <laughs> all things. But we had, we had nothing. We never got along. That's unbelievable, right? So you live next door to her. We heard about you from TV. I was a, you know, I, I was a kid. I, when, when did they these commercials start? Were they seventy six, uh, January of nineteen seventy? So I was nine years old. We bought the record, and and then we heard, after we bought the damn record, we found out that you lived around the corner, or that you used to live around the corner, and and we knocked on your door. My brother and I, I was a nine year old kid, and and my brother was eleven, and we knocked on like idiots, and, and you you were great, you were gracious, you signed it, you were very nice. I don't, you you remember people coming to your door? Yes, I, I, in those days, whenever I could, uh, even though I had grown up and moved out. Uh, at the time I lived in Islip, my mother still lived on Jane Drive. Yeah. And so whenever I could, I would uh, I would go on a say on a Sunday uh, because she made really great meatballs and macaroni <laughs> on Sundays. <laughs> and so uh, when I when I got famous, she would she would have a list. She'd say, you know, the kids are all kids, and they would come to the door. So I take their names. They all want pictures and autographs. But once they saw my car. They flocked to the door, so uh, it got to be like an hour of my visit to my mother and father. Uh, I ended up uh, signing autographs, but I loved it. I mean, I, you know, when you're an unknown and you're rejected all over the place, I can't see how anybody who gets famous wouldn't enjoy the the reversal of, of being rejected, you know. Just amazing, yeah. And you you were you were gracious and and but I mean to us you were larger than life. You were Sinatra to us, <laughs> and, and we're hearing you, that you live around the block, and we're saying, is this is this possible? Could this guy have? And they said, yeah. And somebody said, yeah, he did. And then uh, somebody said, you live next door to Mrs. McSquiggan of of <laughs> of all things, which is insane. Uh, Frank McKay here, much more importantly, Peter Lemongello, who, by the way, his son is a great singer as well. I mean, uh, the, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, and uh, and he's done some uh, done some TV and uh, American Idol and uh, in all kinds of things. And uh, we'll talk to him sometime in the future. We'll be talking to uh, Peter's son.
And I, but right now, Peter Lemangelo uh, again, just an amazing. This is a movie. This should be a movie. And uh, what a career he put together. And he just refused to say no, and and take no for an answer. And and the industry tried to shut him out. He went on uh, went on TV with commercials, a hundred commercials a week, and sold a, a million records. I, I mean, think about it. Do, do you, what did the whole process cost you? If you don't forget about the recording, we know that cost ten grand. But what did the marketing budget cost you? Well, the initial, that's interesting, because now once you make the album uh, and you're geared up to reproduce them, now you have to figure out how you're going to get it to the public. So my idea was TV. We met these people uh, from the, uh, who had a media company, and they structured the first month of commercials, 100 a week, uh, 100 commercials a week. And don't forget, in those days, there were only six channels. Yeah. There was uh, CBS, uh, NBC, ABC, um, WNEW, WOR, and WPIX. That was it. Not like today, there's a thousand stations. Uh, but anyway, they structured the first four weeks for $60,000, $15,000 a week. Wow. And that was going to be it. In other words, it was I was going to shoot the load right there. We had yeah. only about 80000 when we started, so... We blew 10 on the album, and uh, well, I say blew, but we spent 10 on the album. And we had other expenses to reproduce the records and photography and all that. So we had 60 left, and we went, and I said to the guys who were backing me, I said, look, if we sell, we parlay it into staying on. If we don't sell, then we gave it our best shot, and we go home. And we sold enough in the first month to continue. By the second month, it went right through the roof, and we had no problem. We just rolled the money every time we earned it, but it got to be a tremendous amount of money because we sold an un unprecedented amount of records that even I, to this day, find hard to believe. It's it's mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing what you did, and it's just you know to roll the eighty grand in nineteen seventy six. I mean, our house, the house uh, on Kenneth Lane, we sold in, uh, I think, 79 for $32,000, right? That my parents sold it for $32,000. A couple yeah, years later, it was worth it. My parents bought it for eleven nine ninety, if you can believe that. Wow. In the 50s. That is unbelievable. I, I assume you went to Woods Road uh, School, right? Uh, grammar School? All of them. Belmont Avenue School, Woods Road, um uh, Peter J. Brennan or Robert Moses? One of no, let me think. Well, the, the, my junior high and high school were on uh, Deer Park Avenue. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there was Woods Road. There was Bailey's Street. There was just so many uh, one-story uh, schoolhouses that we went. They're big. Yeah. But they were, uh, and each year it seemed like they would build another one and we would transfer from one to the other. Woods Road I, I went to in the sixth grade. It, you know, then, oh, uh, up till sixth grade probably, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I'm just remembering this now, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but Mark Lemangelo was a, uh, a professional bowler. Is that right? No, that's my brother, Mike. Mike Lemangelo. Okay, who, Mike. Who is the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he won the U.S. Open and uh, six major titles on, on the PBA Tour. And 300 games that were sanctioned. So uh, he had the, he had success before I did. Jeez. 
That, that's just this, un- this is com- this is really funny because I was thrilled for my brother. I was always his biggest fan, and uh, and then I happened, and my mother, God rest her soul, she got she got hit from both sides. Everywhere she went, nobody would believe that both her sons were the lemon jellos. You know, she she would go to a, uh, you know present her credit card at a at a, a department store. The lady said, you know, there's a singer by that name. She said, yeah, that's my son. Goes, but there's a bowler by that name. She goes, that's my other son. Said, oh, no, nobody would believe her. It's, again, it's still unbelievable. Let me remind folks once again, Peter Lemongello is our very special guest. And uh, very proud to say that I was a nine-year-old kid knocking on his door around the corner from our house. I, I mean, just uh, amazing. I, I mean, I could throw a rock from my house and kind of lay over the thing and hit his house. Uh, just, uh, just absolutely amazing what he did, though. Sold a million copies of his album uh, on TV. TV commercials just refused to take no for an answer. Actually, just, yeah. just the last, it was a million eight hundred thousand. No way! Oh my God! Almost two million. That's yes. and, un- and and we got bootlegs, and the, the, we have no idea how many we really sold because when you get hot, the people in the pressing plants steal yeah. terribly from you, and they saw and you know all the distributors make deals with the guys in the pressing plants. So it, we insane. really don't know how many were actually sold. But, well, uh, let let me remind okay. folks too that just stepped away. Frank McKay here. And you're tuned in to Breaking It Down. Much more importantly, our very special guest is Peter Limongello. And again, uh, just a, a great singer. His son's a great singer. And we'll be talking to him sometime in the future. And right now, Peter. You're going to hear from Peter Jr., I'm telling you. Yeah, he. I've been listening to him. I've been listening to him on, on YouTube since, you know, this. He's great. Oh, this guy's, I, I'm telling you, you're, you're great. This kid's better. Kid's better than you. And, and you're Thank great. Thank you. I, I agree. Yeah, he is a, a, a heck of a performer too. I, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about your parents. I, I mean, it, they produced a Hall of Fame uh, bowler and a a guy who who sold 1.8 million records um, on his own. I mean, just uh, you know, with a marketing. Uh, scheme and uh, by the way, Peter, uh, let's give credit where credit is due. If you weren't any good, you wouldn't have sold a single record. If you could have spent a million dollars, but your voice is great, you looked good, you look like a star, and all this, and you packaged it right. The the commercial was right, and, and you just you just did it. So I mean, your parents, what the hell did they do? What did they do I right? Think they were, I think um, I lost my my father when I was nine, and my mother remarried when I was sixteen. So, and they remained at, at uh, 12 Jane Drive. My mother was probably more flabbergasted than anybody else because, uh, you know, we had a really close family. We all loved each other. We all uh, co-inhabited so well together. And then Mike and I went on our own. And he had success on the PBA tour, and I had success in singing. And it, it came as a real surprise to my mother. She said, you know, I've been watching The Tonight Show for years. And now all of a sudden I'm watching my son on it, you know. And she said it's it's uh, mind-boggling, but she was extremely proud of both of us. Wow. Yeah. I mean, just say it just can't uh, can't believe it. Uh, if you think about it. what did your dad do? And I'm sorry to hear anybody lose their, their dad at nine. Uh, what did your dad do for a living? He worked uh, as a, as a statistician at the Hartford Fire Insurance Company in uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Now, I was born, we lived in Jersey City. I was born in Jersey City. 
1954, we moved, when I was seven, we moved out to Long Island. And, uh, and then, unfortunately, he uh, contracted a brain tumor and passed away two years later. Wow. Uh, and that's just, yeah, that's unbelievable. And, and Mike is a couple of years older than you? How old is he? he he's, two years, he's two years older than I am. He lives in Atlantic City now. He's, uh, he's retired from bowling, but uh, not from uh, poker. Yeah. Oh, all right. So he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a pretty he's a pretty consistent uh, Texas Hold'em player. Yeah, it's just it, it just wow. When did you notice a difference? And and again, I won't get too personal, but uh, but financially, when did you notice a difference financially from when you started? You know, let's say that that month you knew you're gonna continue on or whatever. When did it start uh, really paying off? And you said, hey, wait, I got a couple bucks here. Well, I would say by April, uh, we, we started to realize. Uh, uh, when did you start again? We started January 15th, uh, 1976. Uh, here's what happens. You have a goal, and you, and you fight to reach the goal. And you don't realize it, but in, subconsciously, you know, if you reach the goal, the money's going to be right alongside of it. But. Yeah. If you just try to make money, you usually fail. You really have to be gold-minded, G-O-A-L. <laughs> yeah. Not gold-minded. But you have to really fight to, to do everything that's conceivably necessary to reach the goal. And then all of a sudden, you, you, just, you start to realize, look what happened. You know, there is, a, there is a reward here that you didn't even expect. I was so caught up with people being so nice to me and, and being famous and uh, all the attention I got that uh, I never concentrated on the money, not at first anyway. Then I started buying Lincolns and Caddies. And yeah. Wow. I, I mean, j just think about this for a second. In 76, obviously that's the bicentennial, right? It was a big deal. But that's the year Rocky came out, right? An Italian guy gets a uh, gets a little uh, a little break, and then it turns into a huge break, and and he makes it happen. You got to be thinking to yourself, hey, this is me, you know? This is I'm I'm the underdog. If there's an underdog in this in this world in 1976, it, it's the guy who couldn't make it work on, uh, or, well, they couldn't make it work for you. Obviously, you made it work on your own. But at, at Epic and uh, and you were getting shut out by the industry in general, and just took it upon yourself. I mean, you had to feel uh, you had to feel some semblance of of a connection with uh, with the underdog syndrome going there. It's the bicentennial. Everybody's talking about us, you know, as as the underdog, America, and all this. This is the American dream. This is a this this is an unbelievable. St this is a movie, Peter. Well, there are people working on that right now. As a matter of fact, yeah, because. They feel it's the Horatio Alger story, all the way from nowhere to somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're working on that right now. But the the point really is uh, when when you're in almost any business, you get kicked in, in the butt. You know, they don't accept your product. But when you're in show business and they don't accept you, that's a kick in the heart. Yeah. Because they're rejecting you. Now, you only have two choices quit and go and do something else or keep fighting until you can break the wall down. And th there definitely is uh, a wall up because almost everybody who starts out in show business as a singer or a comedian 
faces uh, rejection and opposition right you know right away and uh, you have to just keep fighting you really do i mean uh, maybe your motivation is success and maybe it's revenge i don't know but the truth is maybe a little of both what did you do prior to to all of this? I mean, did you were you in rock bands? Were you, uh, uh, d- uh, you know, dabbling with this, dabbling with that? What was your what was your music like in let's say high school? Well, yeah, okay. High school, I was a drummer in a rock band. Uh, I started playing drums when I was ten or eleven, and by about twelve or thirteen, I was in a rock band, and we were pretty good. The two guitars and a drum uh, combination. But, uh, you know, we played uh, a couple of weddings, but most mostly high school dances and um, VFW halls and things like that. And I, I didn't like being a drummer um, because the guitar players stood in front of me and the cymbals were in front of me and the drums were in front of me. So nobody ever paid attention to me. And then uh, and we were just a, a cover rock band, you know, doing all the songs from the 50s, early 60s. Now, when the Beatles hit, everybody started to sing. Mostly, we were an instrumental band, like most of the of, of the rock bands of the era. When the Beatles hit, everybody started to sing because the Beatles sang. So before you know it, everybody in the band that you're with, by this time we had four or five guys, who can sing here? You know. So we all took turns, and they said, hey, you're pretty good. So I started to sing. But again, even though I was a pretty good singer, maybe even very good, they uh, they weren't looking at me because I was behind guitar players and, and the drums. So I was eager. By the time I was 18, I wanted to step out in front of the drums and, and try it on my own. And and, uh, and as frustrating as it was, it was also encouraging because I got a good reaction from people. Uh, the problem is that the record business had really changed. When I came home from Vietnam in 1968, the music business had really changed. A lot of protest songs and um, hard rock had started to happen a little bit. Uh, the songs that were just not what I was doing. So I was kind of swimming upstream with my style, but uh, I didn't let that, you know, deter me. I just kept trying. You know, I just kept trying. You know, yeah. I mean, I auditioned to, for the Tonight Show 15 times before I got on. <laughs> it's just unbelievable determination. Nobody can believe it, but in those days, they allowed you to audition if you were a member of, uh, in order for them to pay $320, they had to audition anybody who was a member of AGVA, which is the American Guild of Variety Artists. And if, if you wanted to go every week at your own expense, bring a piano player and uh, audition, they'd let you do it. And I auditioned over and over again. They, kept, they were nice to me, but they never put me on. And eventually, when Fred DeCorder, I don't know if you know that name. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he produced The Tonight Show. Yep. Um, I was working at the Rainbow Grill. I got a really good break. I was working at the Rainbow Grill, which is the 65th floor of the NBC building, and they aired the Tonight Show from the 6th floor. So I called Fred de Cordova, and I said, because I had auditioned so many times, he took the call. And I said, I'm going to be just an elevator ride away. Bring your wife, bring anybody you want. Let me buy you dinner, watch my show. If you don't like me, I'll never bother you again. And he said, okay. And he came up, and in the third song, he gave me the high sign. And two <sighs> days later, I did my first Tonight Show. What what a gig. What a great idea to get a gig in the Rainbow Room. Uh, just, uh, That's why I wanted it. Yeah, I, yeah no doubt. Guy, 
when I met the guy who booked it, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't work for nothing, but I worked for very little. And I said, I don't care what you pay me. I need this because the Tonight Show's, you know, sixty-four is below me, and I know I, I got to be able to get somebody from there up to see me. And I just believed if they saw me in front of an audience, it would be so much better than seeing me audition standing next to a piano in a in a dead setting in a, in a little room. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, this is a movie. Uh, let me remind folks uh, again that are just joining us a little late. Peter Lemangelo is our very special guest, and uh, just an amazing story about a kid from Long Island, North Babylon, uh, sold 1.8 million records uh, on TV. I mean, they shut him out, and he just uh, he came up with a, a scheme, a plan, and he had a lot of talent, and uh, and and he just said something in passing that we got to acknowledge here, uh, Frank McKay here, much more importantly, Peter Lemangelo. You mentioned coming back from Vietnam. Uh, first of all, uh, let me just tell you, you guys, the guys who came back from Vietnam, uh, just have a special place in my heart. I, I mean, they they got treated like crap. I, I mean, absolute crap. Uh, for for no reason at all, and it was the one set of veterans that just uh, we owe so much to as as a country, uh, uh, to all the vets and and all the wars, of course. But but anybody that went over to Vietnam and came back here and got uh, uh, you know shut out, just shame on us as a nation uh, for letting that happen. But thank yeah, you really, and everybody. Thank thank you very much for what you said. I don't know the reason for it, but to show you the extent of it. I mean, I grew up watching uh, Elvis come home from the Army. He wasn't in a war. He was stationed in, in Germany doing war games. Right. And they treated him like a, a returning hero. And uh, Eddie Fisher before him and, uh, you know, let's say uh, Steve Lawrence, they were, all, they were all on in the service, none of them in a war, and all got treated with such respect. I came home from Vietnam, and it was the exact opposite. We were treated terribly. And where do you hear this? When I did my first Tonight Show, they said, well, what have you been doing? Well, I hadn't done very much, you know, so I started talking about Vietnam. He says, no, no, you can't mention Vietnam on the show. I said, why not? He said, well, war is too controversial. He says, well, we don't want to get involved in that. So I couldn't even mention. Johnny said that to you? Johnny Cross? No, this is the this is the talent coordinator yeah. who was screening me, you know, because they always yeah. do in the afternoon to make up questions, you know, for Johnny to ask you. Uh, but that you can bet that was the policy of Carson. He didn't want to touch the war, you know. He, yeah. Uh, and, and that pisses me off because he was a veteran. Yep. Wow. So, uh, that, you know, that's amazing for him to treat, him, you know, other returning veterans like that. But that's the way it was. Just amazing. I, honestly, I, what, a, what a shameful time in our— so instead, of it, instead of it being a, a benefit for me, it was the exact opposite. I was shunned over it. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. So, wow. Yeah. How, how long were you in Vietnam? A year. Wow. It just, it just, I, was there during, I was there during the Tet Offensive. It was pretty rough. Wow. Just wow. And you, uh, you were drafted? 
you bet. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a what a what a story. Honestly, I'm thrilled to honored to have you. It really is. Peter Lemongello, everyone. Frank McKay here. I'm blown away by his story. I did I, honestly. I knew some of this. Uh, this is the first time we're talking since I'm nine years old, and he would never remember me. I remember him, but uh, but it, uh, he was a heroic figure in the neighborhood just by making himself a star, and just an amazing career. I Peter do, I, that's so nice of you, Frank. I, I do remember your mom and your dad. Yeah, and I, I remember when Bridget was born. No, that's that's somebody different. I'm uh, oh. who's Bridget? That's that's I another that family. You think? Oh, okay. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was that was your sister. No, no, no. My my brother. I I had a brother growing up, uh, Gordon. I still have a brother like you. He's two years older than me, and I was the younger of the uh, the two. And we both came over there with our albums. We bought we both bought an album, and uh, and we knew you were a Long Islander, but we had no idea. When we found out you were around the corner, we were like, "What? This is insane!" <laughs> it was mind blowing because you were it, you were like a sensation. You were. Hey, what did you sing on the Tonight Show? What song did you sing? Oh, I was on 25 times. There's so many. Oh, were you really? 25 yeah. times? Yes. Um, uh, my God. The, the the song that I'm famous for is Do I Love You. It's Paul Anker's song. Uh, that was the, the, the theme of the commercial. And it was, so it's obviously I I did that on the Tonight Show and other other talk shows. But 25 uh, times. I, I remember you on Mike Douglas, right? You Were you on Di Merv Griffin? Dinah Merv Shore. Griffin, Dinah Shore. And uh, th those four, Mike Douglas, uh, Merv Griffin, Dinah Shaw, and Tonight Show, many times. Total of 35 times. Do you, have, do you have copies of all these shows, or are some of them just impossible to get? Impossible to get most of them. We have some. And um, I have a, a, a one on uh, one, one compilation of two Dinah Shaw shows that I could send you. Yeah. And uh, you might get a kick out of that. Yeah, just I listen. I can't wait to talk to your son. He's got a uh, he's got a voice I, like an unbelievable voice. I, uh, how early did you notice in him that he he really had it? Uh, he was about ten when he started to sing uh, around the house, yeah. and uh, you know I would look at my wife and say, uh, "Karen, do you hear what I hear? Because it sounds like sounds like he's really pretty good." And uh, just on his own, very quiet about it. Never wanted to know. Uh, I mean, he knew what I did, but he he never wanted to pattern himself after me or, or try to emulate me or in any way. He wanted his own his own style and his own uh, interpretation. And that's what he's done. He's just evolved that way. You know, he's really uh, uh, completely on his own. Does his own rehearsal. It does. I mean, I help him here and there, but only in the technical sense. You know, I don't try to help him with his style or his, uh, his uh, approach to songs or anything, you know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. you know, like any other teenager, well, now he's not a teenager, he's 21 now. But, you know, uh, if people would say, uh, for example, you know, when he'd be interviewed, they would say, and obviously you have a famous father, and he'd go, yeah, right. And he would just, <laughs> <laughs> just change the topic completely. Yeah. Well, listen, you, but your story, this is a this is a movie. I mean, this isn't a movie of the week type movie. This is a movie. This is a blockbuster. This is an underdog story. And But you throw in there Vietnam. I mean, you, Vietnam. Think about it. Your mom, God bless you, your, your mom, and God rest her soul, uh, she raised two champs. I mean, really. Uh, and it was just the two of you, right? It was you and Mike? Yes. 
Wow. Imagine imagine that mother uh, busting with pride. I mean, geez. geez uh, something happened there, right? I mean, something uh, uh, something happened there. That's not just luck. That's not just uh, – she's – she had to be very well, nurturing she, or, or she positive. She really encouraged, she encouraged us and did that. You know, it's a typical uh, uh, mother who drove us. Uh, when I had my, my rock band, she drove us to the jobs, picked us up. You know, she, uh, don't forget, we were teenagers. We didn't have cars. We yeah. didn't have licenses, you know. Uh, she encouraged my brother completely. You know, she always encouraged us, never, uh, never tried to uh, act like she knew better and, uh, you, you shouldn't do this, you should do that. She was never that way. She always gave us the opportunity to pursue whatever could make us happy, and, and that's probably why we were so fortunate. Now listen, uh, you were lucky to have her. God rest her soul. And, uh, and Listen, we're lucky to have you and, and, and your fellow vets in Vietnam. We'll never be able to thank you, and we'll never be able to apologize to all of you for how, how you were treated when you came back. What a disgraceful disgraceful moment in history of how yeah, I never know why the American public did that but uh, shameful yeah. absolutely shameful listen yeah. uh, it, it, thrilled to have you hopefully I can get you for a part two I got to get I got to get your son uh, uh, it would be absolutely great but congratulations on just an amazing career I uh, get this into a movie form I'm telling you it's it's thank a hit you. it's a hit thank movie you very much thank you very much for having me and uh, stay stay well stay safe uh, and stay in touch before you go, before you go, do you have a website or a social media site? Yeah, I do. Um, it's uh, PeterLemonJello.com. And do I have a social media site? Yeah, you have a, a, a Facebook. I, I know that. Facebook, yeah. And uh, are you are you a friend on it? If not, we'll make you one. Yeah, we'll find we'll we'll find find our way to each other. But that's how how I found them. But Peter, thank you very much. Congratulations. Tell your son I can't wait to talk to him, and to everyone out there, Peter My Lemon pleasure. Jello. Stay well. Yeah, stay thank well, you very Peter. Much. Bye and bye. To everyone. Uh, Peter Lemoncello has been our very special guest. What a story! I mean, just an incredible story. Just uh, never say, uh, never say die. Uh, he just uh, he got shut out by in, in the industry, and he went at it on his own, and uh, and went on TV to push his album. Sold 1.8 million records on TV. The first to do that. Uh, just an amazing career, an unknown going on TV. Peter Lemongello has been our very special guest. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you next time on Breaking It Down. He's breaking it down so you don't have to. This is Breaking It Down with Frank McKay on 107.1 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.